Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 7, Search for a Clue As Rick fell to the floor, he twisted sideways and managed to bring up an arm to protect his head. In an instant, he was buried in a great, heavy, slippery mass of fish, his nostrils filled with the oily stench. And when he opened his mouth to breathe, he closed it again on a fishtail. He spat it out and then furious struggled against the slimy weight, got his hands and feet under him, and heaved. Fish cascaded from his arched back, and he broke clear just as Scotty reached him. You all right? Scotty gasped. Yeah. Captain Mike, hurled clear by Scotty's rush, was getting to his feet. Scotty departed on a dead run. Rick collected his thoughts and yelled, Hey, wait, where are you going? After Kelso, Scotty called back over his shoulder. Rick didn't know what had happened, but evidently Scotty did and was doing something about it. He ran after his friend, brushing off dirt from his clothes as he did so. He heard Captain Mike call, Wait for me! But he didn't pause. At the entrance to the pier, Rick caught up with Scotty, who was looking up and down the street. His face flushed with anger. He's gone. No use looking for him because he can hide anywhere around here. But we'll catch up with him one of these days. And when we do, let me tell you, boy. What is this all about? Rick demanded. Carrots tripped that scoop on us. I don't know how, but I know he did it. Captain Mike came up behind them in time to hear Scotty. He's the one all right. There's an emergency trip on those scoops, set in the wall. It's in case the operator loses control. Then the scoop can be dumped without having all that weight smash against the end of the track and break things. Young Kelso must have punched the trip. He sure did, Rick sniffed angrily. And I smell like ten days in a bait pail. Scotty, we've got to get home and get out of these clothes. I can't stand myself. Chick, Scotty replied. Well, I guess that wraps up the investigation for the night, Captain. Captain Mike nodded. I want to be around when you boys meet up with young Kelso. That was as fishy a trick as I ever saw pulled. Rick looked at the old sea captain suspiciously. Captain Mike was having a hard time to keep from laughing. Then Rick had to grin himself. Don't laugh too loud, he reminded him. If Scotty hadn't pushed you, you'd be smelling like a weak old herring yourself. I know, thank you, Captain Mike said. He threw back his head and roared. Rick laughed too, but when Captain Mike doubled over with mirth, he began to grow a little irritated. Wasn't that funny, he said a little tartly. Scotty chuckled. Maybe this is what amuses him. 
He reached over and plucked a small Manhattan from the breast pocket of Rick's jacket. Dangest place to carry fresh fish I ever done seen, Captain Mike said, and he went off into gales of laughter again. Rick took out his handkerchief and mopped his face. Well, he said, grinning, I'm sure glad those Manhattan weren't whales. They drove home to Whiteside with all windows wide open and newspapers on the seat to protect the car, but even so, the stench of oily fish made Rick feel a little queasy. We can't go to Spindrift like this, he complained. Tell you what, I'll take the woods road that goes down by the tidal flats. Then one of us can cross over, get clean clothes for the both of us, and some soap and towels. We can go to Walton's Pond, take a swim, scrub off the fish, and change. Well, that's a good idea, Scotty agreed. But these coats and pants let be dry cleaned. Well, that's easy. There's a night service door at the cleaners where we can just push them through. Scotty chuckled. You ain't going to get any thanks for that. The whole dry-cleaning place is going to smell like a fish market before morning. Okay, we'll wrap them up in plenty of newspapers then. Where are you going to get the papers? From the morning record. I want to go there anyway. Scotty gave him a sidewise glance. You got an idea? Just a glimmer. Rick's lips tightened. And I'll tell you something else. Until now, this case was just sort of interesting for itself. But now I have a personal interest. I think the Kelsos are at the bottom of it. And we owe them a debt, Scotty finished. Oh, carrots at least. What do you suppose he dumped the scoop on us for? Rick shrugged. Sheer poison meanness? And weren't we warned not to go to Seaford? An hour later, when they had cleaned up, the boys returned the car to Gus, apologized for the fate but definite aroma of dead Manhattan, and walked to the morning record office. Duke Barrows, veteran newspaper man, but young in years, greeted them cordially. Hello, Rick. Hello, Scotty. Here are those cards for you. He swiveled his chair around and regarded them with interested eyes. Getting anywhere on that Seaford yarn? We're still feeling around, Rick replied. But there's a good story in it if we can find the lead. Keep working, then. I'll pay you space rates if it hits page one, Duke said. How much is that? Scotty wanted to know. Twenty-five cents a column inch on this sheet. You didn't expect to get rich, did you? Rick returned Duke's grin. If this story is as good as I think it is, we'll just about get rich. You want to cover the whole front page with it. Can't be that good. Rick looked around the office. Where's Jerry? In the composing room. He'll be back in a minute. Got anything on your mind? Just an idea. Do you keep a file of New York papers? Over there, on the shelf. Help yourself. Rick nodded his thanks. Let's go give my idea a try, Scotty. Scotty tucked his press card into his wallet. I could probably help if I knew what the idea was. Rick explained briefly. He wanted to check the shipping sections for the dates when the albatross had been seen in Creek House. He particularly wanted to know what ships had arrived at New York at noon or before on those dates. He was interested in ships arriving from southern ports in the Caribbean or from southern Europe. That, he figured, would give them only the ships that might have been standing off Seaford in the early hours before dawn at the critical dates. 
He had a vague idea he might find some sort of similarity in the ships that had been off Seaford on the critical dates. The registry might be the same, or the ownership. But when the compilation was completed, there were no similarities at all. In fact, so far as he could determine, no ship had been off Seaford during the time he had chosen as having the best possibilities. As they walked toward the Whiteside boat landing, after saying goodbye to Duke and Jerry, Rick rapidly reviewed all they knew about the wreck of Tom Tyler's trawler and the events at Seaford. I sure thought I had the connecting link, he said. I still think so, even if there isn't any evidence in the papers. It's the only answer that makes any sense. Scotty nodded. Keep talking. Okay. The Kelso suddenly arrive at Seaford and move into Creek House. Then the Albatross starts making visits at a time when no fisherman in his right mind would pay calls. So Brad Marbeck must be going to Creek House on his way back from the fishing grounds for a good business reason, right? It figures. Go ahead. Tom Tyler spied on Creek House and he found something out. Red Kelso warned him, and Tyler refused to take the warning. Result, his ship was wrecked. We don't know how yet, but we'll find out. Another thing, Mrs. Tyler was frightened, and Tom Tyler is afraid to talk. What's your guess on that? Scotty kicked a pebble out of the path. Kelso again. When Tyler didn't take the first warning, his trawler was wrecked, and he was told the next time something would happen to his family. That's the only threat they could make stick with a man like Tyler. If they threatened him, he'd laugh at them. But if they threatened his wife and his little girl, well... Yeah, that's the way I see it, too. Now, what kind of business requires a boat, a house on a secluded part of the beach, and a guard with a rifle? Smuggling, Scotty said flatly. Smuggling. It was the answer that fit. Rick didn't know yet what kind of smuggling, but he intended to find out. If you were the Kelsos, and if you were bringing contraband into Creek House, how'd you get it out of Seaford, he asked. Scotty thought it over. Not trucks. Captain Mike said he hadn't seen any trucks calling it Creek House. How about taking it somewhere in a small boat? In his mind's eye, Rick saw the countryside surrounding Creek House as he had seen it from the air. Right up Salt Creek, he said excitedly. How about that? If they unloaded at the pier when the albatross came in and then reloaded into a motor dory or some other kind of small boat, they could take it right up Salt Creek to the bridge. And then all they would need would be a truck waiting there. And if they did it late at night, there wouldn't be any traffic to worry about. That's got to be it, Scotty exclaimed. Then he sobered. But how are we going to find out if that's the answer? There was only one way. I guess we're just going to have to go see for ourselves, Rick said. As they passed the dry-cleaning establishment, he took the bundle of newspaper-wrapped clothes he had been carrying and dropped them into the night service opening. A whiff of the departed Manhattan smote his nose forcefully, and he added grimly, And believe me, it's going to be a pleasure. Chapter 8 The Old Tower Rick tightened the last screw that held the searchlight telescope unit to his camera and looked at it with satisfaction. I should get a picture, 
he murmured. There were still quite a few unknown factors. He knew the theoretical power of the infrared searchlight, but only an actual test would tell whether it gave enough light for the rather slow infrared film emulsion. He was sure it wouldn't give enough light at its extreme range of 800 yards. In all probability, he would not get an image on the film at a greater distance than 200 yards. It was a little strange to think in terms of light. True, infrared was light, but it was not visible to the human eye. The searchlight would cast no beam that could be seen, although anyone close to it would be able to see dimly the hot filament of the bulb. Another unknown was the ability of the film's emulsion to register the reflected infrared rays of his particular searchlight. The emulsion had been designed originally for infrared flashbulbs. The motion picture film had been made at his special order. It was not a stock item. He wished Professor Gordon were at Spindrift. Gordon could have measured the wavelength of the searchlight with his lab equipment. Rick wasn't skilled enough to use the delicate spectrometer wave analyzer as yet. And Hartson Brandt was busy with a problem in the library and couldn't be disturbed. He hoped he would have a chance to ask his father before he tested the camera. He rechecked the data that had come with the film and started to do some figuring. Scotty came in just as the phone rang downstairs. Both boys waited expectantly, and in a moment Mrs. Brandt called, It's an out-of-town call for either of you. We'll take it up here, Mom, Rick called back. He and Scotty raced for the landing. Scotty reached the phone first. Hello? He nodded at Rick. It's Captain Mike. Something had told Rick that the call would have to do with the Seaford case. He glanced at his watch. It was almost noon. Scotty held his hand over the mouthpiece. He wants to know if we're coming down today. Says he has something to talk over with us. Rick said quickly. We'll be down by boat right after lunch. Scotty relayed the information and hung up. He didn't say what it was, but he sounded worried. Want to know why we didn't come down this morning. Afraid of being smacked by a fresh tuna, Rick grinned. By the way, did you call Jerry while I was working on my camera? I sure did. He got all excited. Had to calm him down a little before he went and looked up the answer. Scotty had phoned at Rick's suggestion to find out from Jerry's newspaper sources what action to take in case they found evidence of smuggling in Seaford. He said to report it to the nearest federal authorities, either the Coast Guard or the FBI in the area. But he said to be sure we had something more than suspicion to go on. Well, that's a good idea, Rick agreed. It wouldn't do to get the government all steamed up over nothing. Besides, unless we could prove it, we'd be laying ourselves open to a charge of slander. Well, let's go see if Mom can scrape up a sandwich, and then we'll go over to Seaford. It was not yet two o'clock when Captain Mike greeted the young men as they tied up at the old windmill pier. Mighty glad you're here, boys. We've got to really buckle down to business. What happened? Rick asked. He and Scotty fell into step with the old captain and walked toward his shack. Tom Tyler's hearing's been set for Saturday morning. Scotty frowned. Today is Wednesday. That doesn't give us much time. I know it don't, but unless we find some answers fast... Tom will lose his license sure as shooting. And that's not all. He'll find himself charged by the insurance company with deliberately running the sea bell on the reef. Rick found a comfortable seat in the captain's shack and stretched out his legs. Let's hold a council of war. 
If we're going to do anything, we better have a plan of action. He told Captain Mike of their suspicion that the Kelsos and Brad Marbeck might be engaged in smuggling and waited for the old man's reaction. Captain Mike rubbed his chin reflectively. Now, it could be you boys have something there. It could just be. Yeah, but what would they be smuggling? Scotty demanded. Oh my, but the list is a mile long. Most people think it's only worthwhile to smuggle things like drugs or aliens. But I tell you, many a tidy sum has been made by smuggling things just to escape paying duty on them. Suppose they are smuggling, Rick pointed out. How are we going to prove it? Catch him red-handed, Scotty said. Red-handed instead of red-headed. Rick and Captain Mike groaned in unison. It was a decision they had reached the night before, and Rick had given some thought to it before going to sleep. There are a couple of ways we might do that. First of all, we know they have to get rid of the stuff somehow. We could keep watch on the creek house until it's moved. The only trouble is, they may be letting it pile up in the hotel. That would mean sticking on the job all day and all night. That's not practical, Scotty objected. Your mom would object to our staying out all night for maybe a week. Besides, we want to find the answer before the hearing Saturday morning. How about this, then? Rick continued. We move in on them when the albatross pulls up at Creek House to unload. Scotty stretched out at Captain Mike's bed. That's fine, but how do we know when the albatross is going to visit the Kelsos? Captain Mike tells us. Captain, according to what you said... When we were here before, the albatross sometimes stays at Creek House until almost midnight. That means that it takes them a while to unload whatever they're smuggling. Scotty had an objection. If they were doing any unloading, wouldn't you have seen them, Captain Mike? The old seaman shook his head. No, I didn't dare get close enough to see what was going on. Besides, my eyes ain't what they used to be at night. I just sat off the end of Salt Road, letting the reeds hide me and saw what I could, which wasn't much. If I'd gone up the creek any distance, they'd have spotted me against the sea. Rick finished. So you see, if Captain Mike could keep an eye on the creek, he'd know when the albatross arrived. If he phoned us right away, we could be here in an hour, maybe even a half hour, if we took the fast boat. Sounds sensible, Scotty admitted. Any other plans? Just one, which isn't very practical. We could get somebody to fly out over the fleet during the most likely hours and wait for the Albatross to make contact with the supply ship. Wish we could fly at night, but we can't. The contact has to be during the darkness, and I think before dawn is the best time. If Brad Marbeck made contact after he got through fishing, some of the other trawlers might see the ship coming. Then they'd get curious and hang around to see why Brad was hanging back. Maybe that's what Tom Tyler did. But if he left and made contact before dawn, the others might think nothing of it. I don't suppose they all leave at once, do they? Scotty asked the captain. No, they don't all leave at once. But they usually come back at the same time. And Brad has been coming back as far as Salt Creek with the rest. So I guess Rick guessed right. Captain Mike did some figuring. Tell you what, I can sit on the beach at the edge of town with a pair of night glasses. I'll borrow some. I can tell if a ship turns up by Salt Creek by its running lights. Afterwards, I'll have to go a block and use the phone at Fetty's Drugstore. We'll start tonight. 
Scotty got up and yawned. Well, that's settled. Now I'd like to look into something. We can't overlook any possible lead. Rick, remember the tower? Yes. Rick got to his feet, too. And I remember something else. That business about the shifting current on the light. Captain, have you talked to Captain Killian? Not yet, but I surely will today. That may be worth something. He walked with them toward the pier. But what's this tower business? Rick explained briefly. We'll stop there on the way back to Spindrift. Phone us if Captain Killian has anything interesting to say, Scotty requested. I will. Now you boys be careful. Keep a weather eye out and don't forget those wardens. We're not likely to, Rick assured him. As I sped past the Seaford waterfront toward Smuggler's Reef, Rick plotted a plan of action. First, if they were to spy on Creek House, they needed to know a little more about the area. He assumed that they would hurry from Spindrift by boat, since it would take too long to go to Whiteside and try to get a car. The Cub was out. There was no place to land in Seaford. The best way of finding a good hideout from which to watch the Kelsos would be to take a photograph from the air. He could do that this very afternoon and develop it at home. An enlargement, which the photo lab at Spindrift was equipped to make, would be better than a map. He felt better now that he had an objective. But... Suppose the Albatross doesn't do any smuggling before Saturday, he asked Scotty. Well, tough luck then. Captain Tyler would just have to suffer a while longer. Besides, this is only a hearing. If he's tried, it won't be until later. I guess that's right, Rick agreed. He swung the launch around the tip of Spungaloo's Reef, past the light and the wreck of the sea bell. For the first time since the fatal night, there was no one at the trawler or up on the reef. He put the launch close into shore at the sandy strip near the creek house fence, and Scotty jumped to the beach with the anchor as before. Rick joined him on the sand. Now, for a look at that tower. Where did you see the marks? Scotty pointed to the rusted structure. There were four upright girders slanting inward from the base to where the top platform had been. Horizontal girders held the structure together one-third and two-thirds of the way up. The marks are on the first row of cross pieces, on this side, responded Scotty. The steel-climbing ladder was on the Seaford, or the opposite side, of the tower, halfway between the uprights. Rick looked at it dubiously. Pretty rusty. Think it's going to hold our weight? Maybe only one of us had better go up, Scotty conceded. I'll try it. Rick looked at his friend's solid frame and shook his head. Uh-uh, chubby. I'm the lighter. I'd better do it. You're not that much lighter, Scotty objected. Tell you what, let's flip for it. Okay. Rick produced a coin, tossed it in the air, and called, Tails. And it was. Scotty picked up the coin and turned it over, as though making sure it wasn't tails on both sides, and then handed it to Rick with a grin. Can you always call your shots like that? Only on Wednesdays. He gestured toward the high board fence that cut them off from Creek House. Look, just to be on the safe side, you keep an eye open for the Kelsos. If you see them coming, give me a yell. I don't think they dare try anything in broad daylight, but you can never tell. All right, I'll stick near the boat. As Scotty walked back to the launch, Rick went to the base of the tower and looked up. 
The frame seemed secure enough in spite of the rust. He jumped for the first rung of the ladder and hauled himself up. In a moment, he was on the horizontal girder. The scratches the Scotties had seen from the air were clearly visible. To reach them, he had to work his way around the girders to the opposite side. He stood up, found his balance, then walked easily to the corner girder, rounded it, and crossed to the other side. The marks were only a few feet away. The upper stories of Creek House were on and above his level now. He could look right into the windows of the second floor, except that the windows were so dirty he couldn't see much. Suddenly he froze. One of the second floor windows was being raised. He saw a vague figure behind it, but it was dark in the room, and he couldn't see clearly. There was no reason to be disturbed about it, yet he felt a quick wave of apprehension. He had better look over the scratches and get out of here. Holding onto the corner girder, he crouched and leaned outward toward the marks. There were two bright scratches about a foot apart. Between them, the entire rusted surface had been disturbed. Something had rested there, or more likely it had been clamped there. He swung back a little to look at the inner side of the girder and saw contiguations of the scratches that terminated in round spots. When he leaned forward to look at the outer side, the marks were there, but so slight that they wouldn't be noticeable unless one were looking for them. He couldn't think of anything that would make marks like those. He wished he had brought a camera. A photo would have given them something to study later. Then as he turned and started back, something whistled over his head and slapped sharply into the upright girder. His first thought was that Scotty had thrown a pebble or something to attract his attention. But when he looked, Scotty was facing the other way. A whistle and slap came again. This time, he looked up and the strength drained from his knees. A few inches over his head were silvery splashes against the rusty surface. They were the silvery marks of splattered lead. He was being shot at. Rick reacted like a suddenly released spring. He dropped to his knees, his hands reaching for a hold on the girder. They hooked over the inner edge, and he rolled free to the opposite side. For an instant, he dangled in space. Then he dropped, his knees flexing to take the shock of landing. It wasn't much of a drop, maybe 14 feet. And as he dropped, he yelled Scotty's name. Scotty started for him on a dead run, but Rick's yell stopped him. Start the boat! Cast off! Then Rick's legs flew as he ran for the launch. For the moment... Both of them were cut off from Creek House by the high board fence, but to get clear, they would have to come out of the fence shelter and into the view of the second-floor sniper once more. He planned as he ran, and he jumped across the water to the launch. He gasped, Stay close to the reef! Pick up speed! Get going! The launch was already in motion. Rick dropped into the seat next to Scotty in his pail, pushed the gas pedal all the way. The nose lifted and the stern dug in. Rick turned to watch, and as the second floor of the creek house came into view, he said, Give it all you've got. Cut sharply across Salt Creek. The rushes will cover us. Hang on! Scotty snapped. He threw the wheel hard over, and the launch rocked up like a banking plane. Then he leveled off, and the boat shot across the creek's mouth to safety. Only then did he turn to Rick. What happened? Somebody took two shots at me, Rick replied shakily. Dollars to dill pickles, it was our pal Carrots. 
because I didn't hear the shots. That damn air rifle, Scotty said, his mouth tight. I can't wait to get my hands on my little playmate. Did he miss you by much? About six inches. Both shots hit the same place, maybe within an inch of each other. Scotty frowned thoughtfully. Well, then my guess is that he wasn't trying to hit you. If he's good enough to place two shots like that, he wouldn't have had any trouble picking you off. Did you see him? No. I saw a window open just before I got down to look at the marks. Anything to him? I don't know, frankly, Rick said. He was still a little shaken. Listen, should we report this to the police? Scotty shook his head. No proof, no witnesses. But your word against his. He could claim he was just target practicing and that you weren't on the tower when he fired. He could even claim he didn't fire the shots because the slugs would be so splattered that the police wouldn't make anything of him. Yeah, I can see him laughing his head off, Rick said bitterly. First because of dumping the fish scoop, and now because he sent us hightailing out of there like a couple of frightened jackrabbits. It would have been stupid to stay and get shot at, Scotty pointed out. Even if he is a good shot, he might accidentally clip you. Rick had to admit the truth of that. Just the same, we're going to go back and build a fire under Mr. Carrots. You wait and see. 